Good morning to each one and greetings in our Savior's name. It is good to be gathered together with you all again after not being together last Sunday. We're in a new year and I just want to wish each of you the Lord's blessings as you seek and serve Him in 2024. We just sang the song, More Love to Thee, O Christ, and may, be, may that be each of our experience in 2024. For the message this morning, I want to continue our study in Matthew. I want to bring a message from Matthew chapter 12. I want to break in at verse 22. I want to look at the message in two parts this morning. The first part, we have three main topics. Those are demonic possession, a house divided, and the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And then in the second part, we'll look at a tree and its fruit. So read Matthew 12, starting at verse 22. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb. And he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And Jesus knew their thoughts, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And if I, by Beelzebub, Cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God is come unto you. Or else, how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man, and then he will spoil his house? He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy of against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Stop reading there for now. The title for the message is A House Divided. And the first thing I want to look at here is this demonic possession. Verse 22, they bring to Jesus this man who is demon-possessed. And it doesn't tell us who brought him. It just says they brought him. I would say it's a good chance it was the Pharisees. The Pharisees were involved in some kind of demonic deliverance. Demonic possession was a big problem in those days. The Pharisees also believed that there were certain demonic situations where there was no hope. And I believe they brought, they probably brought this man to Jesus thinking that he was a hopeless case. Thinking that Jesus really could do nothing about it. Jesus is a man of power 
and authority. They bring to him this man who is possessed of the devil. And, and like I said, they thought there was no hope for him. I find it interesting that Matthew, in one verse, simply tells us that Jesus healed the man. They bring this demon-possessed man to Jesus and he heals him. It's not that big of a deal for Jesus. And in this, we see him displaying his power and authority over the demonic realm by casting out the spiritual power that had held this man captive and bound him from being able to see or speak. Satan is no match for Jesus. Jesus is the creator God in human flesh. And Satan is only a created being. When it comes to power and authority, Jesus trumps Satan. And Jesus was not hindered by this situation that this man was suffering under. <clears throat> the picture I see here in Matthew 12 is one that conveys for us what Satan wants to accomplish in all people, in all the sons of Adam. What he did to this man was he took away his ability, ability to see and he took away his ability to speak. He effectively blinded him. And he also caused him to not be able to speak. And that is what Satan wants to do. He wants control of people's lives. This demonic presence is real. But we don't see it so often in our circles. But Satan has other ways of blinding and muzzling people. He desires to blind people from an understanding of the gospel, of knowing that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Savior. Paul writes about the fact that God, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who are in the world lest they believe. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So there is this blindness there. And Satan does that very effectively. Even when someone does opening their eyes and being able to see who Jesus is and the gospel of truth that is behind him. Even then there are times like something is there keeping him from speaking, keeping him from crying out to God. And salvation is largely a part, dependent upon crying out to God. So just because someone isn't demon-possessed doesn't mean that they cannot be under his influence or control. As a, as a believer, you have the Spirit of God living within you. You're invested with the Spirit of Christ. He lives within you when you come to faith in Christ. But that doesn't mean that as a believer, that as a believer, cannot be under the influence or oppressiveness of evil spirits. That's why the Bible talks about putting on the full armor of God. Being, being prepared 
being alert, remembering that our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Scripture gives us many warnings to be on our guard. 10,000 foes arise. The hosts of sin are pressing hard to draw thee from the skies. O watch and fight and pray. The battle ne'er give o'er. Renew it boldly every day and help divine implore. Ne'er think the victory won, nor once at ease sit down. The arduous work will not be done till thou hast got that crown. So the believer has the spirit of God dwelling within them. The unbeliever doesn't have to be invested with a demon to unknowingly to be under his control. First, First John five nineteen writes, John writing, we know that we are children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. There are two kingdoms in the world. You have the kingdom of God and you have the kingdom of this world. You're either part of the one or the other. There is no neutral ground. If you're not in the kingdom of God, you're in the kingdom of this world. And these two kingdoms, they want control. And one of them is going to be in control of your life. If one isn't, the other one is. That is what John is saying here in this verse, or in this passage in 1 John. Satan longs to get a hold of people and take control of their lives. And it doesn't have to be through demon possession. Next, I want to look at a house divided. It says here that when Jesus delivered the man from this demonic presence, and he was able to both see and speak, that the people were amazed. The Greek literally means that they were beside themselves. And they asked one another, could this be the son of David? And that was a way of saying, could this be the Messiah who we have been waiting for? Then we have the response of the Pharisees. And it reveals much about their hearts and what is in them. They say, well, he is in with Satan. And that is why he can do these things. They were crediting Satan for what took place. Verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Beelzebub is a name given to Satan, the prince of demons. They say that is why he's able to drive them out. He is in with the devil. And he responds in two different ways. Verse 26. Well, let's back up to verse 25. It says, And Jesus knew their thoughts. And that is only something that God can do. It says, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will this kingdom stand? It 
Jesus has observed that it makes no sense for Satan to cast out Satan. He is saying is if Satan is in the business of casting out Satan, because Satan is also in the business of keeping people in bondage. So now if he is in the business of releasing them from bondage, then he is putting them in and he is also releasing them. That means his kingdom is divided against itself. That means there is a problem. His kingdom cannot stand. You cannot be yourself at the same time. That is not possible. The sobering thing about this statement that Jesus makes, he's basically reminding us that this principle is true not just in the kingdom of Satan, it's true of any kingdom. It's true of any city. It's true in every household. The presence of internal strife and division is a sign that things are in a bad way and destruction is about to happen. Jesus says if there is division, it is going down. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. He says, I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Though our Lord has all his, all his own, He has His own power. He honored the Spirit of God and worked by His energy and mentioned the fact that He did so, says Spurgeon. In verse 29, we have Jesus talking about His power over Satan's. Or how can one enter a, strong man, enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds and then he will plunder his house? If Jesus is saying, if I am casting out demons and you are admitting that I am, what that means is I am able to go in to his house and take what I want. Or if you knew that a thief or a robber was coming to your home, you would do something about it. Jesus is saying in order to go in and take what you want, you have to first incapacitate or bind the strong man. And the fact that I'm casting out demons has proven that I am able to incapacitate Satan. Because right in front, of the, front of the, in front of the people, in front of your presence, he walked in and took something in the form of people who are under bondage to his control. I went in and I proved to you that I had the ability to take what I wanted and set them free. And if that is the case, then the kingdom of God truly is among you. The Lord's power over demons was evidence enough that he was the Messiah. The spoil his goods or his house refers to Satan as being defeated or ruined by the capture of souls from him for Christ by the gospel. In all of this, Jesus is showing that he has the authority. He has the power. He has the ability 
They didn't want to recognize it. Now I want to look at the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Verse 30 says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. What is Jesus saying here? Here we get this idea of not being neutral. There is no position of neutrality. Jesus is telling us there is no neutral ground. If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not gathering with me, you're scattering. This thing of gathering and scattering are farming terms. They deal with the man who works the ground. They deal with the man who works the livestock. So in the context of a crop farmer, for example, if you're not out there sharing in the gathering of the harvest, you're out there scattering the grain, the precious harvest. And for the livestock farmer, if you're not helping me to gather the flock, you're scattering the flock instead. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. We'll read that in the NIV. It says, And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Here Jesus, the Savior, talks about a sin that cannot be forgiven. We think of Jesus as the one who forgives all things. So let's look at it. Something I like about Scripture is that you can find other verses that build and support and bring clarity to a verse or a thought. God's Word doesn't contradict itself. So when we look elsewhere, we're able to bring clarity to a verse or verses. So for this one, I invite you to the gospel, Mark's Gospel. I'm going to compare his writings. Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 28 and 29. Mark 3, verse 28. Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. I also want to read verse 30. Here's key. Because they said, he hath an unclean spirit. So this verse 30 is commentary that Mark has added to what we have here in Matthew. He saith this because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. He has an evil spirit. Meaning Jesus is doing this by the power of Satan. He is in with the devil. And I believe that is why Jesus said this. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It is declaring the supernatural work of Jesus Christ is accomplished 
through the agency, power, and authority over of Satan. And I believe that is why Jesus said what he did. Let me read it again. It is declaring the supernatural work of Jesus Christ is accomplished through the agency, power, and authority of Satan. The Pharisees were hardened. They were so determined not to believe, regardless of the evidence. They had evidence that demanded a decision on their part saying Jesus is who he said he was. But they were determined not to do that. They tried to convince people that Jesus was in with Satan himself. Where they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus had warned the religious leaders against rejecting him. Their rejection of Jesus, especially when you consider what they had seen of Jesus in his work, showed that they were completely rejecting the Holy Spirit's ministry. And that ministry is to testify to Jesus. That is why we have the warning of committing the unforgivable sin. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is deliberate rejection of Christ. His Spirit wrought miracles in His salvation. It's the ultimate sin that by its very nature puts a man beyond opportunity of salvation. It's the Holy Spirit that brings to man's heart the offer of salvation. Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. We read that verse and what jumps out at you? What jumps out is the negative circumstances that are conveyed in this passage. This verse also contains a promise, so let's look at it again. It says, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now Jesus gets to the root of what the Pharisees are about. When we read Scripture, when we read from God's Word, God's Word exposes what is at the root. And He does this with the Pharisees. But there are principles here that apply to our lives. What is at the root? What is at the heart of what is going on in our lives in January of 2024? Now I want to look at a tree and its fruit. Verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by its fruit. O generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. Out of the good treasure of the heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you, that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. 
This is not a new thought to us that Jesus is presenting here about this idea of fruit being the means of identifying a tree. Jesus dealt with this in Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, by saying that the church would have false prophets who would come into the church from time to time and they would be hard to distinguish from the rest of the body of Christ. <clears throat> he said they would look like sheep. They would talk like sheep. They would smell like sheep. But they would actually be wolves in sheep's clothing. And the only way you're going to be able to find out what they actually are is by their fruit. Because that is how you recognize a tree. You can recognize a tree by its fruit. Let's take a peach tree, for example. You look at a peach tree, or you look at a peach, and you say, this is a peach tree. Or if you have an apple, you say it came from an apple tree. So once again, Jesus turns this idea of fruit bearing being the revealer of the inner workings of the heart. But rather than repeating himself here in chapter 5, excuse me, chapter 12 with what he did in chapter 7, he adds some interesting additions to this whole idea of a fruit and what is behind it. So the first thing we need to look at, I believe, is key to understanding is found here in verse 33. Let's look at it again. It says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. It says, make the tree good. He then, then he says the outcome will be good fruit. Then he says, make the tree bad. And that stood out to me as I studied. Make a tree good. I thought that's an interesting phrase. How do you make a tree good or make a tree bad? Isn't a tree just what it is? It's either an apple tree or it's a pear tree or it's a peach tree. A tree is a tree, right? How do you make it good or make it bad? So I looked into this word make to see if it was there in the original Greek. And sure enough, it's right there. The word that is translated make means to bring something to pass or to be the cause of something. So Jesus is saying to make a tree good and its fruit good or make a tree bad and its fruit bad. How do you do that? How do you cause a tree to be good or bad? So as we read on, Jesus gives us keys and we keep unlocking information. And what do we see there? Verse 34 says, A generation of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So in this case, it's bad, brutal vipers. What do you think of when you see this word brood? It's often used to describe animals, the hen and her brood. But it can be used for people as well. What Jesus is saying here when he says, you brood of vipers, is you offspring of vipers. The King James says, generation of vipers. The snake, the serpent. 
He is saying to the Pharisees, you are children of the devil. How can you bring anything good out of your mouths? You're evil. How can you, being evil, speak good things? Later, out, later on in John's gospel, he comes out and says it. John eight forty four, You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father... Excuse me, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So, how do you make a tree bad? By being a child of the devil. This whole reference to trees comes back to people. Jesus is talking about people. He is referring to people. When someone rejects the purpose of God and the will of God for their lives and ultimately His Son, then the tree is bad and the fruit from that tree is bad also. Next, how do you make a tree good? We need to be the opposite of being the children of the devil. And we must be the brood of God. We have to be children of God. Someone is essentially a brood of the devil when they reject God's purpose. So how does a person become a child of God? Is it by coming to church? Is it by reading your Bible? That doesn't make you a child of God. Even memorizing scripture doesn't make you a child of God. The Bible is very clear about how we become a child of God. John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13 tells us, But as many as received Him, we heard in our Sunday school class this morning about receiving Him, it says, To them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. Not we're not talking about children who are born to parents. We're talking about children who are born of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is how a tree is made good. You have to be born of God. You have to be made a child of God. Brood of God, offspring of God. It's a tree that is made good by grace. By the unmerited favor of God. Then we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. By the grace of God I am what I am. You didn't make yourself a good tree. You are a good tree by grace. Now the potential is there. The potential, potential is that you can bear good fruit. The person who has a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, but you and I can. Even though you're a good tree, do you bear good fruit all the time? There are times I blow it. I mess up. Sometimes my tone of voice isn't as loving as it should be. Or I may say things I wish I hadn't said, and I have to apologize. You see, what we say reveals what is stored in our heart. 
Verse 34 says, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Our mouth reveals what is in our heart. When your mouth opens up and words come out, that is what is in your heart. From the abundance of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The things that come out in the moment of emotion can be devastating to relationships. Something that takes five seconds to come out of your mouth can take a long time to heal in terms of relationships. What comes out of our mouths is what is in our hearts. The Bible talks about renewing our minds, renewing our hearts. There's this time of being in the Word, engaging in Christian fellowship, letting the Word of God wash over us, and letting a greater work of the Holy Spirit bring lordship into play in our lives. Jesus is saying you can tell a lot about someone by their language. Our language is a mirror, a looking glass into our heart. And just because you're a good tree, you and I can't bring out bad fruit from time to time. We will see in Scripture why that happens. Jesus confirms this way of speaking that can happen in the life of a believer. Turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3 verses 8 to 10. Says, but no man can tame the tongue. It is, un, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. My mouth proceed blessing and cursing, my brethren. These things ought not to be so. So we see that this is completely inconsistent for a good tree to bear rotten fruit. It's like the man who has an orchard to walk up to one of the trees in his orchard and look at his apple tree and the fruit is rotten. This should not be. This should be good fruit. See, why does it happen? Verse 35 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. Those are key phrases says, a good man brings out good things out of the good treasure of his heart, out of his heart, his life. The evil man brings out evil things out of the evil treasure. So our language, our actions. And Jesus is specifically talking about language here. It comes out of what we have been treasuring in our hearts or what we have been storing up. What are you storing up? What are you putting in? What comes out is dependent on what the treasury holds, the treasury of our heart. King Solomon, who wrote the majority of Proverbs, knew and understood this principle and wrote about it. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. I'll go read it to you in the NIV. It says, Above else, Excuse me, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. Do you know what a wellspring is? 
A wellspring is the source of all the wells that are in a particular area, and it feeds them. Think of a wellspring as your heart, and that all the other wells are the things that your life produces, the words that come out of your mouth, your actions. If the wellspring, if your heart is tainted, then your words are going to be affected. It will also affect how you treat others. So he says, guard your heart, for it is the source of life. In fact, he says, guard it above all else. So what are you storing up? What are you treasuring in your heart, in your life? Verse 36. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. Idle words. Idle word in the Greek means vain or empty. Useless words. Words that were spoken for no reason. Words that did not build people up and encourage them. They did not instruct. They did not warn them. They were just empty words. We think about being judged for using words that are bad, but what about words that are just empty? Jesus says we will give an account for every empty or vain word we speak. Are you talking about things that have eternal value? Ultimately, Jesus says our words will tell the story. Verse 37, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Your words reflect your heart. Your heart is a storehouse. This wellspring that moves your mouth and your hands. Jesus said our words do reflect who we are. We see what is in our heart. Jesus says sobering things about this. A man's words mirror his heart. They tell a story. And by that story, you will either be acquitted or you're going to be condemned. Also, Paul in Romans writes about the importance of our words. Do your words acknowledge Jesus? Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in closing, verse from Ephesians 4, verse 1. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In this passage, Paul uses the word worthy. He says, I want you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. This word worthy means of equal weight. So let's think of it as a scale, a balance beam scale. On one side of the scale is your calling in Jesus. And on the other side, you have the words that you speak, how you live life, and so forth. 
He says, I want those to be balanced. I want there to be balance between your life and your calling. Your, your calling is to follow Christ and walk in holiness. To walk as he walked, to live as he lived. What are you putting in your heart? The books, the magazines that you read, the music we listen to, these all contribute to what we are storing in our hearts. Am I living my life in balance with my calling in Christ, or am I out of balance? May the Lord add his blessing. Shall we have a song?